The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'd like to welcome to the show, Matt McLaughlin. Hi, Matt. G'day, Dave. How are you doing? Great, great. Now, you're the, uh, you're the author of a book, uh, Flying the Knife Edge, which looks like a fantastic book, uh, all about your flying career, particularly in uh, Papua New Guinea. That's right, yeah. So it's um, uh, 19 chapters. The meat in the sandwich is mostly all the stuff about New Guinea and the New Guinea bush flying and some of the, the peripheral stories and World War II history and all sorts of other things. Uh, a lot of stories about people I knew who were involved in near misses and unfortunately a lot of people um, who were killed. So I, I go into a few details about those accidents. And that's um, bookended at the front and, and the beginning, sorry, at the beginning and the end by um, the beginning of my career, which was uh, as a, a, a high school leaver going straight into the New Zealand Air Force. And I talk about that and how that ended, which was uh, not pretty for various reasons, um, yep. but it was a great foundation. And then the end of the book uh, is one chapter about when I joined uh, Cathay Pacific Airways in um, 1995, uh, talking about you know what it was like to learn to fly the 747 and all that airline stuff, and really using that as a contrast against uh, what the New Guinea flying was about, you know, the, the, the structured... Uh, dry procedural airline stuff versus um, all of the excitement of bush flying in Papua New Guinea. Right. Well, um, can we go back to the beginning? And, and um, you know, you're from New Zealand. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Gisborne. So, um, born in Taronga, but moved to Gisborne when my dad got a transfer with his work when I was about five. Yep. And then stayed there all the way through to uh, Form 7 or Year 13, as, uh, as they call it now, when I went to uh, do officer training at um, RNZAF base Wigram, which obviously is now closed. Uh, I think all the basic stuff is done in a hockey these days, isn't it? But, yeah, I, I shot off to Wigram as, a, as an 18-year-old uh, to start my officer training, and that rolled into the um, pilot training squadron uh, on my first wings course. Right, right, okay. And um, so when did you join up with the Air Force? So I joined the Air Force in January 1990, 
and did the 13-week officer training course. And then that rolled into, I think, two or three weeks of ground school at Pilot Training Squadron, getting all the exams and most of the theory out of the way. And then I started a WINGS course. I did about a third of the WINGS course. And then I had uh, glandular fever or mononucleosis, as some people call it. And that led to a three-month break. I was in hospital for quite a while. Uh, it was pretty rough there. And then back to Wigram, I think the training budget was very tight, so they didn't let me start flying until the junior course had caught up to where I'd been. Um, yep. And then, as I talk about in the book, uh, things fairly quickly went pear-shaped. I think the break wasn't good for me, and I had a bit of a falling out with the commanding officer, which is a long story, but a okay. um, bit of personality clashes and probably some naivety on, on my, my, my part, maybe some immaturity, and obviously the break in such a concentrated training course didn't, didn't really help. So I left the Air Force after 15 or 18 months and, okay. and then went into GA. You must have been at Wigram at the same time as I was, I think. We probably passed uh, each other on the street many times, I think. Oh, right. Uh, we were there that yeah, night. I, yeah. I, I got posted in there in, um, um, uh, was it March or May? I think it was May um, 1991 I got posted into Wigram. Oh, we must have just missed each other. So I started in okay. 90 and I think I left, um, I think it was Easter, so it would have been April or May of 1991. So we must have missed each other. Uh, right. So you, I don't suppose, did you ever hear a story about um, a 1954 bright pink Chevy that carried 10 officer cadets that used to drive around base Wigram with um, squadron leader pennants on it? <laughs> no, I, I never heard that one. Uh, well, that, that, was, that was my course. So we, we had a great time. Um, the, the commanding officer of um, command training school, a lovely guy called Jim McMillan, his wife sewed the squadron leader pennants for us. We put them on the aerial of this 54 Chev, drove around the base, and all the new um, uh, ACs and LACs, I guess, would, uh, yeah. would stand to attention and snap, you know, snap snappy salutes as we drove past, which they weren't supposed oh, to do. Oh, it was brilliant. hilarious. It was hilarious. <laughs> happy, happy days, eh? Oh, yeah. It was a great base. It was a really great base. That yes. place. It's, just, it's such a shame that it's no longer uh, anything now. It's all houses. So. Yes, I, I went down there for a twenty-year reunion for um, my second wings course, which was five eight nine, and yeah, it almost brought a tear to the eye. We went to the old one mess and had a reunion, which is which is um, secret code for uh, booze up, and. Yep. Um, <laughs> Yeah, most of it was gone. I think most of the hangars were gone. It was yep. if you'd been there and, and lived it and breathed it, and it was a part of your history. It was quite sad, but I guess um, that's called progress, is it? Inverted commas. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, so, what, what, when you joined the air force, what was your desire? Did you want to get into the jets or the transport aircraft or the helicopters? Or um, I had uh, quite a long-term view. So I, th I wanted to be an airline pilot, and I yep. figured that rather than um, actually have to you know, work and pay for it myself, I thought well, I'll get the New Zealand government to pay for it and I can do my seven or eight years in the, in the Kiwi Air Force and then join Air New Zealand. I, I, like I said, I was probably a bit naive and I honestly thought that was how it was all going to pan out. And right. at the time, I was quite keen on flying the Huey, the um, Iroquois. They had a detachment in Christchurch, so I used to drool uh, when those uh, guys uh, came past. And, of course, yep. everyone's a, a closet fighter pilot. So everyone back then, you wanted to fly the A4 Skyhawk. Yep. But uh, when things started going pear-shaped for me, I actually said to my mates, and I think I said it in the book, if they asked me what I wanted to fly, I just said something with a roundel on it, you know, something that's got RNZAF painted on the side. I don't care what it is. I just want to hang in there. Um, oh, cool. But, yeah, but the, the, the ultimate goal was um, to get to the airlines. And as I say in the book, um, you know, I got there, but not long after getting into the airlines, and certainly at this stage of my career, I look back on the New Guinea stuff, and, and that's... That was the best flying I'll ever do, and I actually really miss it. And I wish I'd appreciated the journey more, which is another theme of the book. You know, um, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And that's, as cliched as that might be, that's very much the case with me, and that's another um, theme of the book. Yeah, well, absolutely. So uh, when you left the Air Force, you went to do uh, civilian flying training. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, that was... Um, it was a shock to the system because I, all I knew was the, the Air Force way of doing things. Um, so uh, obviously this is all in the book as well. So I went back to my hometown and I went into Air Gisborne uh, with a lovely, lovely couple, uh, John and Margaret Reed, who were running that uh, business. I believe it's still going, probably run by, I think, one of their uh, sons. And 
just instantly switched to plan B, which was get some part-time work, some shift work, and um, work towards finishing off the, the commercial pilot's license and all those other things that people do, you know, instructor's rating and um, twin IR rating and all that stuff. I mean, it was a, it was a standard um, CV that you needed to build up. And again, I yep. thought I would join uh, Air Nelson or uh, possibly Air New Zealand on a friendship or maybe go and instruct somewhere for a while. That's not really what happened, but that was, that was the plan. And it was, as I said, it was a shock to the system. I mean, um, I'd gone from, you know, the Zoom bag and the parachute and the May West and the, the Alpha flight helmet and uh, the yep. Nomex gloves and the very structured um, Air Force system. And obviously the budget was big, so there was no... We didn't have to think about commercial considerations or you didn't have to think about how much fuel you're burning or you just jump in and go and do the, the training mission, whatever it happens to be. So having to jump into a 172 in a, um, you know, a T-shirt and jeans and a pair of runners and a you know, borrowed, uh, I think it was a Telex headset I had initially, um, jumping into an underwhelming uh, 172 was quite a shock. I came, as I say in, in the book, I came to enjoy it and realise that there's no right or wrong way and there's no you know, way that's better than another way. The Air Force way is just different. But um, yeah. it took me a while to settle in. And just to really wind me up, uh, the, the tented camp. So I don't know if some of the, uh, the listeners might remember, and I guess they still do it. The Air Force used to do tented camps as the last phase of the fixed wing, or the propeller, I should say, phase of the wings course, where you'd go off in a big gaggle of air trainers back then and yep. land somewhere and you'd have a tent organised and you'd do your NAVXs out of there and, you know, C-130s would turn up and F-27 friendships would be there in support. So that that uh, tented camp for my wings course that I'd recently been cut from was in Gisborne. So oh, all, wow. of, all of my mates turned up in air trainers looking cool in all their military gear and I'm standing there, um, uh, next, you know, next to my 172 uh, at Air Gisborne. But I took it on the chin, and uh, it was fine, and and um, it all worked out fine. I mean, in aviation, you've got to have a plan B and a plan C and a plan D, and um, you've got to be tenacious, and you've got to be, a, to a certain extent, lucky as well, right, to get where you want to go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So how long did it take you um, from the point where you started training in the civil system uh, to get in your commercial licence? I think it took about 18 months. So okay. I had some part-time jobs. I, got, I came out of the Air Force with 120 hours, I think, 124 hours in the air trainer, but most of that was uh, dual. So most of that yep. was under instruction. So I was really lacking in solo hours. So I had to get 80-something hours solo. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And... Uh, I had to pay for it as well, of course, so I had to uh, work, you know, the normal normal story. So um, I got a job at Pizza Hut, so I was a kitchen hand at Pizza Hut by night and eventually graduated to a delivery driver. So that was, uh, that was uh, you know, a special kind of a promotion. Uh, and I was also working in a brewery as a, at the weekends. I had a lawn mowing job. I was maitre d' at a restaurant uh, downtown one or two nights a week. And I worked at a public bar in one of the big hotels, well, big for Gisborne anyway. So that all took about 18 months and I got all the qualifications. And then, so now we're talking 1990, 1991, um, Air New Zealand got rid of all the friendships. So suddenly all those jobs that I thought I was going to be lining myself up for disappeared. There was nothing. There was just nothing happening in New Zealand. And that was yep. the, that, that's why I wound up going to Papua New Guinea. Okay. Now, how did that even come about? Um, so I uh, went to a Catholic school um, and grew up um, uh, attending, uh, you know, the school masses and stuff, the, the ch school yep. church services. And at some stage, I saw. Oh, that's right. This is going to sound cheesy, but it's actually what happened. I saw Air America. Um, yep. On VHS, I guess um, might have been Betamax. You know, now now you're talking. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a VHS. Uh, VHS uh, in Air America with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Jr. and Mel Gibson. For those those aviators who haven't seen it, you, you must go out and watch it. It's fantastic, I, I presume. It is. Isn't it? Great flying, right, Dave? And, it is. It's amazing. Yeah, and so quite early on there's a scene there, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. This must have been about 91, where um, Mel Gibson is doing a female flight with Robert Downey Jr. in a Pilatus Porter, and he starts making an approach to a little skid mark of dirt on a steep slope on the top of a ridgeline yep. in some bush in Laos, Cambodia or somewhere, wasn't it? 
and was, uh, yeah. Robert Downey Jr. sort of protesting, you know, you can't land there. And, uh, and he does, and it's real footage. And I just thought, wow, that is incredible. And I suppose, again, naively, I thought that I had thought that the only adrenaline to be had in aviation was um, down low, you know, fast with the hair on fire and an A4K Skyhawk. Um, but I realized that there was a lot of exciting flying out there in the world. And so that was a light bulb moment for me. And then I started thinking about using my, my you know, freshly printed commercial license to apply to be a volunteer somewhere through possibly uh, the Catholic Church in, in New Zealand. So that's what I did. I applied through an overseas volunteer service. Um, it wasn't an evangelical thing, so I, wasn't, I didn't have to um, you know, stand on a, in the middle of a, of a village reading out the Bible or anything. It was just a, you're a layman, you've got some talents, oh, sorry, you've got some skills we can use, so, you know, uh, medical people, doctors, nurses, carpenters, engineers, um, all sorts of people with skills who are happy to volunteer their time to be given food and board, and that's about it, and, and help somewhere and in, in, in return be helped. Uh, so, yeah, I applied to a thing called COVS, which was a Catholic overseas volunteer service. I think it's called Mahatahi or something now. It's still going. And um, months and months later, I got a letter uh, or a fax. It certainly wouldn't have been an email um, saying, We've, you've got a slot. Uh, you're going to fly a, a Britain BN2 Islander in Kerama in Papua New Guinea. So I had three problems. I didn't know where Kerama was. I didn't really know much about Papua New Guinea. And I didn't know what a BN2 Islander was. But of course, <laughs> of course I said yes. So off I, oh, off I went. So that, that's what took me to Papua New Guinea. Okay. And they, uh, they paid for you to get up there and all that sort of thing? Yes. So they operate on um, donations, I guess. So, yes, they, they flew me up there. And, and then I arrived at sort of a halfway house for missionary volunteers in Port Moresby, the capital of New Guinea. And the idea was that I would be trained in, as a bush pilot and then be sent to run... Um, it turned out to be a Cessna 206 uh, out of this place called Karama in the Gulf Province, which is in uh, southwestern coastal um, Papua New Guinea. Okay, okay. So you did your bush training actually from Port Moresby itself? Yes, it was a bit of an odd setup. So there was a, a, a Chinese-Australian guy called uh, Mac Lee who had his own small airline. He was a one-man band. And he yep. obviously had done a few runs in and out of Karama, which was about an hour west of uh, Port Moresby following the coast and he knew the uh, administrative staff there in the, the mission station and I think they asked him to train the new mission pilot to get him to get him or her and we're talking about me um, yep. to a, a, a standard where uh, where I could um, you know take over and run the run the, 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 the mission station or the aviation side of things a long story but what really happened was so when I got there, they had an Islander, but they sold that because the running costs were too high. And then they, um, they did faff around for quite a long time organising a new plane. And it was supposed to be a one-year uh, missionary uh, contract. And uh, so about six months in, I was still training with Mac Lee in Port Moresby, flying up to the mountains north of Moresby, which was his training ground or his uh, commercial operating area. So we're talking yep. the, the strips of the Kokoda Trail and, and west out to a place called the Guilalas and all the way through all the Gulf Strips and across to the north coast occasionally as well. And I, I was on a bit of a timeline and things were getting quite slow and I got to the point eventually where I, I had, sadly, I had to say to the mission station, you know, this, the, six or eight months has gone by and I'm supposed to be going back to New Zealand in four months. So, you know, what's happening? And eventually they said, look, this is taking a lot longer than we thought. It was, I think it was awkward on both sides, and they said, we'll just release you and you can do what you want, and, and that happened. And then I think um, they must have start, waited to get the plane and waited till things were properly in place so they could get a, a new mission pilot. And Mac Lee said, well, rather than go back to New Zealand, you can just work for me. So he went from a, ah. a one-man band to, um, I suppose, poaching me in a way, but um, it all just sort of happened. There was, it wasn't done... Uh, you know, there was no dodgy business going on. There was no one trying to, you know, screw anyone out of anything. It just, it was a natural sort of thing that happened. So I went right. as uh, as a full-time pilot, uh, trained by Mac, flying a Cessna 206 into the bush strips of New Guinea. And I did that for almost a thousand hours uh, in the 206. Wow. What was it like trying to adjust to both living there uh, in, you know, completely different kind of 
country and also adjust to the flying conditions there. Yeah, both massive contrasts. Um, and I, I, this, you know, this takes up at least a chapter in the book, just talking about that period of settling yep. in. Um, well, from the flying side, so I had, by the time I got to New Guinea, I had 400 and something hours, I think, just, just shy of 500 hours. So I trained in the New Zealand Air Force um, and I had been instructing. I had a little bit of instructing time at Air Gisborne and had my twin rating and I thought I knew what I was doing. And the first approach into the first one-way airstrip, you know, um, horse, uh, a horseshoe um, stuck onto the side of a, uh, a mountain in New Guinea, about 5,000 feet above sea level, about 12-degree slope. I think it was about 450 metres long. I honestly thought Mac Lee was joking when he joined down when to land there. I thought he was just pulling my leg. So, <laughs> so the, the hardest thing about it was there was just no visual reference. So, you know, normal airstrip, you're, you know, most of the time, for most of us, you're down one to a thousand feet, and you know you go to your forty-five degrees for a, a base turn point, and you make a ninety-degree turn, or some people do a one eighty, um, and you know final at five hundred, and and the visual picture, the basics of it are all the, always the same, aren't they? You know, yep. you, the, the runway's there, and you're over land or water, and all the altitudes are standard. So you go and do it in New Guinea, and you're landing on the end of a strip that's twelve degrees sloping up. There's a, there might be a thousand foot drop off the end of that strip down to a river valley below. You might be in a little v- basin with eight or nine thousand foot mountains on either side. And so there's all these different angles and there's no horizon really. And it's all just completely different. And you're, you just feel like you've got nothing to hang your head on. You've, you, you really, the, all the visual cues are different at every airstrip. So um, it took a long time to, to get used to that. And basically all you wound up doing was or your only focus is the threshold. So you don't care about what the runway is doing. And um, obviously, you modify your um, downwind and, and final approach legs and all those things, depending on terrain and obstacles and things. But all you're doing is doing a, a power and an attitude that takes you at the right airstrip, sorry, at the right airspeed, at the right approach angle to hit the end of the runway. Because if you don't, because most of them are so short, um, you're going to slide off the end. And if you undershoot or if you have to go around, a lot of the places, uh, up in the, in the bush there is no go around sometimes from when you turn onto base or often when you're about four or five hundred feet AGL you cannot go around certainly not in a normally aspirated Cessna 206 that's probably overloaded as it is because you, you can't climb the terrain so if you stuff up your approach you will crash and if you crash uh, the trees are all you know 100 feet tall so there's a good chance that you're not going to um, survive so very you know really precise um you know, incredibly focused flying. Um, so that was a big adjustment. And then, yes, of course, when you land, you're landing in a, at an airstrip with people who don't have much contact with Europeans and don't speak a language that you speak and are living in a, a hut beside the strip. So, you know, you're basically going back to, um, well, you're seeing things that you've just never seen before. Yeah, so it was quite, quite um, mind-boggling there for a while. And, of course, back in Port Moresby, back then, I don't know about now, but, um, you know, there was a major law and order problem. So we had problems with roving gangs and break-ins and and violent crime. And uh, Moresby was actually quite a dangerous place. A lot of the time I thought I was safer flying in, you know, flying a 206 in the mountains of New Guinea than I was, you know, sitting at my dining room table at night in the house in Port Moresby. So you feel like you're under attack from all sides. But at the same time, a beautiful place, incredible flying. And most of the people I came across were really wonderful. So, um, uh, you know, it's not as bad as everyone everyone thinks it, it might have been. Did you ever uh, go into any um, wartime strips that had been used during the war? Oh, a lot. And I didn't really find out about this until I started writing the book, uh, which was about a 10-year process. So so part of the... the um, the, but another one of the, the themes of the book is just weaving in all the stories about all the amazing World War II history that certainly Australians don't know and I think Kiwis know even less. Um, yep. So one of the chapters I talk about flying into Rabaul and going not too far from Green Island, which was also called Nissan Island, which is where um, the Kiwi Air Force had a Corsair station towards the end of the war. So yep. I talk about that and there was a um, famous day where the, when the Kiwi Air Force lost the motor, most airplanes they've ever lost in a single day, uh, either before or since where a whole lot of Corsairs crashed uh, on a rescue mission to save one of their downed pilots. So that's um, uh, one of the stories I talk about. And I was, I was always landing on the old Marsden matting or the, the pierced steel planking 
material that they still have on some of the airstrips. And I fly over B-17s, Kitty Hawks. Um, there's all sorts of wrecks just off some of the airstrips. There's a lot of World War II history. So that's another, uh, as I say, another major theme of the book, talking about all that World War II stuff. And I flew into 10 or 12 of the airstrips on the Kokoda Trail. And um, I cover that in detail as well, talking about what it was like you know, to fly into those airstrips in the, in the 1990s and then contrast that with what was going on there uh, in the latter stages of World War II with the Australians, you know, holding off the Japanese who were making a big push from the north of the country to come in and take over Port Moresby. And if they'd made it, they would have controlled all the shipping routes between uh, the US and the Pacific. So that would have been, uh, you know, a major, a major setback for the Allies. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned before about uh, the village people in, in the jungles and uh, in the mountains that lived next to the strip. Yes. Um, were, because you were ranging around all different parts of the country on, on these different flights, were, were the people you came across, um, did they speak different languages from each other? Were, was there lots and lots of language barriers because they all had their own little culture and, and, and that sort of thing? They're definitely all different. One of the really amazing things about New Guinea is that there are over 700 languages spoken in New Guinea. So wow. if, you, if you had a list of all the languages spoken in the world, Papua New Guinea is the place that has you know, a, a higher percentage of individual languages, I think, than almost any other place. So quite amazing. And that's obviously a result of the topography. So even between um, you know, a village on, on one side of a mountain range and the village on the other side of the mountain range, sometimes they're even within sight of each other, yeah. the people could be quite different. There could be a different mood when you landed in the airstrip. You know, some of the, some, sometimes the whole village would be friendly and sometimes across the valley the whole village would be timid and shy and you'd almost never see anyone. They'd all be sort of hiding when you turned up. But there, there is a common language, yeah. There's probably two. Uh, there's a language called Motu, which is the language of uh, most of the coastal tribes. And there's uh, Pidgin English, which is also spoken through the Solomons and other parts of the South Pacific, which is, that, that's the language that I spoke so that I could get around and, and you know, conduct business at the airstrips, buying, you know, uh, selling tickets and, and collecting money on uh, trade store good orders and negotiating with people and, you know, having a chat. Uh, so right. Pidgin English, yes. Yeah. So there, there is one language that's pretty much spoken everywhere. But, um, yeah, the tribes are all... Very, very different. And then and the, the Highlanders, uh, I was based eventually in the Southern Highlands flying a twin otter out of a place called Mendy. The Southern Highlands, or, and the Highlands in general, those people were very, very different to the coastal people. Yeah, totally different. Okay. Like, like from a different, you know, different country. PNG has political problems. They're going through it at the moment. Um, and it's never ending because a Papua New Guinean sees themselves first and foremost as a member of a particular tribe. And then somewhere, and then obviously family, and then tribe, and then somewhere way further down the track, they may consider themselves as Papua New Guineans, but that's a secondary consideration. So it's even now very, very tribal. Right, right. Uh, did you spend much time on the ground when you would land at these places, or would it be quickly unload, load up, and go? Um, well, yeah, it depended on how much work there was on, on for the day. Normally, you, you couldn't faff around because you might have. Well, on the Twin Otter, I could do 18, 19 sectors uh, in the day, and you actually wound up running out of daylight, so you couldn't faff around. Right. So a lot of the time, um, you're in a bit of a rush. And another good reason to finish as early as possible is that the weather got very scary after lunchtime. So um, the, the tropical weather, um, I'm sure some listeners will, will appreciate this, after lunch in the mountains, uh, in the highlands, anywhere around, or anywhere equatorial, that's when the you know, 40,000 foot CBs build up and they're, they're over those mountain ranges and valleys and flying in the afternoons was uh, a lot more scary. So generally, um, we tried not to fly in the afternoon. I mean, I did. I did plenty of it, but it wasn't ideal. Um, but yeah, to put that in perspective, I mean, the Royal Australian Air Force would come through quite often and they generally didn't fly after lunchtime because it just got too difficult, especially given that they had a lot less um, knowledge and currency uh, than than we did because you know we lived there and did it every day and they just came up for one or two weeks a year. Right, right. So, what sort of altitudes would you be flying at above the the jungle? Well, the the civil aviation department in New Guinea aren't, aren't uh, don't have anything on me anymore, so I can tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> well, so typical flight out of Port Moresby, um, you uh, take off obviously at sea level and then in a two hundred six you'd climb for about half an hour. 
So yeah. I suppose you're lucky to make five or 6,000 feet and you're still at low level. So the terrain uh, in that, um, you know, 50 miles or 45 miles that you've made um, uh, along the ground, distance-wise out of Moresby, you've just been climbing the whole time and, and you wind up after half an hour of climbing in a Cessna 206, you level off and you're at 500 feet above the, the valleys. Wow. So you're at five or 6,000 feet and the Owen Stanley range goes up to about twelve or 13,000 feet. So within 20 miles of you or five miles, 10 miles of you is, is the main spine of the country, which is, yeah, um, going up to about 12,000 feet. So, yes, so, so it was quite, that took me a while to get used to. Climb for half an hour and I'm low level. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's so, amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was I mean, you'd have things like that in New Zealand, I suppose, wouldn't you? You could you could climb out of um, Timaru or Christchurch, and head yep. you know head straight for the Southern Alps, and have the same sort of problem. But in New Guinea, the mountains are a lot closer to the uh, ocean generally than somewhere like Christchurch. Right, right. Did you ever have any problems with uh, with the aircraft in terms of um, you know mechanical issues when when you were either flying along or or if you landed at a strip? You know, I think the first people that, or the first thing a lot of people presume is, you know, they hear you're flying in Africa or you're flying in, uh, I don't know, the Arctic or you're flying in Papua New Guinea or you're flying um, in South America. They presume the maintenance is um, is crappy or, or in some way substandard. Um, I didn't have any major problems at all. Uh, I think the maintenance was good. Uh, Mac Lee, when I was working for him, before I went on to my sort of the third level airline, I was working for subsequent to him. Um, he had most of his maintenance done, the big stuff done in Archerfield in, um, in uh, Queensland. And the day-to-day -day stuff was done by very experienced engineers in New Guinea. And we have to remember that there's um, places like Missionary Aviation Fellowship and New Tribes Mission and uh, uh, some of these other missionary outfits had engineering centres and they had you know, world-class engineers and facilities. So generally the maintenance was pretty good. I'm trying to think, I had a, I think I had a starter motor die once. Um, I, I did, what did I do? I was very lucky, which we'll probably talk about soon, I suspect. I did three, almost three and a half thousand sectors in Papua New Guinea. And I, the only thing I broke was a nav light because I landed on a place that was so steep. I think I clipped the tail of the 206 um, when I did a, when I overflared. So I broke a nav light once. Um, but no, no, apart from that, no, no dramas. I had a few minor things happen uh, on the PT6s on the Twin Otter, but um, never, never stranded anywhere, um, never, never had any problems. No, no, it's okay. surprising, right? I had a good run. Yeah, well, that sounds, that sounds like a good run. Did you do any prepara you know, have any preparations in place or do any training in case you did come down in the jungle, or was it just... You know, just hope. <laughs> um, yeah, that that I hadn't even thought about that. No, there was zero zero training. Um, it was all pretty loosey goosey uh, with a with a CAD. Um, I think what had happened was that the um, imperative to get aeroplanes in and out of all of these places was greater than the need for it to be um, overregulated. So certainly back then. Um, people, you were allowed to work out your own performance, you were allowed to work out what you thought you could take out of an airstrip because if the CAD had come down heavily and started, um, you know, taking a, a more a serious approach to it all, for example, you know, the P-charts, there were no P-charts because you're, you're, you're landing at a place that's got a um, pressure altitude of 8,000 feet above sea level because it's 6,500 feet above sea level, it's ISA plus 15, it's 30 degrees. And the P-charts say you can't do it. So how do you do an air transport category operation or an RPT transport operation when, when you're off the charts? The CAD just let us get on with it. And those in positions of, of responsibility and check and training and the various airlines and the little GA companies were given the benefit of the doubt that they would train the, the young, you know, young pilots to know how much they could and couldn't take out of each airstrip. And I suppose hand in hand with that goes the fact that there was no training in what to do if you went down in the bush. I mean, I'd, I'd done a survival, I'd done survival training in the Kiwi Air Force, so um, I suppose I had a slightly better idea than some, but um, 
you know, what do you do? I suppose you, you stay in the aeroplane and make sure the beacon's gone off and hope they can find you. But the terrain was so terrible there that even with a beacon, I mean, I had, I had friends and acquaintances and we couldn't find the crash sites for a long time because the beacon echoes off canyons and mountains and, you know, it gets very, very hard. And this is all pre, you know, this is in the days before GPS. So, uh, you, you know, there are cases where, and I talk about it in the book, where people crashed and the, the wreckage wasn't found for 10 years and, and even then just by chance. So was I trained in jungle survival? That is a very definite no. Oh, wow. Okay. So did you have any uh, scary moments, any uh, incidents that terrified you in flying there? Oh, lots. Yeah, the hard part was deciding which ones to talk about in the book and which ones not to talk about. Um, <laughs> okay. oh, oh, definitely. I mean, if, if you're... Uh, if you're doing that sort of flying, and, and again, especially in the days before GPS and before, um, you know, I know I know the people uh, the people flying in um, in Papua now, flying for Susie Air and those sorts of things, um, and even flying the Pac 750s, right? That some of the operators have in New Guinea, it's wonderful. Yeah. They've got um, uh, you know uh, ter- terrain displays, and they've got um, uh, enhanced uh, GPWS you know, ground proximity warning systems and they've got, um, obviously that's tied to GPS and global databases and they, they can see even when they can't see. But back in the time I was there, you know, if there's cloud, then you better know where you are because um, if you're in the wrong valley, uh, there's often there's no escape. So when I was there, um, we lost 10% of the airplanes every year. Uh, there was a crash that was either a serious injury or, or one or more fatalities every month. And most of the time I knew someone involved. So it was a traumatic um, experience and I didn't realise at the time but uh, it was one of those things that you, you, you can't focus on, on how dangerous it is because if you do, you, you, you can't get the job done. You know, one of your mates yeah. gets killed in a crash on Wednesday in some shitty weather at an airstrip somewhere and on Thursday morning you're tasked with doing the same run that he just did uh, yeah. and you know he was killed you know, yesterday afternoon but you, you can't dwell on that. Uh, there's a lot of parallels with, um, and I did a lot of reading when I was trying to come up with my own writing style, and there's a lot of parallels with um, uh, people flying in combat. So a lot of the World War II stories where something bad happens to your mate Johnny, well, you can't talk about Johnny anymore because if you do, you won't be able to do your job. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of repressed um, trauma, I suppose, which, uh, you know, uh, I think maybe it was a cathartic experience for me to write down you know the stories of some of these crashes and some of the people that I knew who were killed to um, almost to get it off my chest and also to tell the story that they weren't less skilled than the rest, rest of us who made it they were just less lucky you know a lot of the times it just came down to um, you turn right you die I turn left I get away with it uh, you yeah. know that, that's how fine the line was and that's where the title for the book comes I guess flying the knife edge you know you don't know you're on the knife edge until you fall off it but I'll tell you what you're bush flying in New Guinea you're always on the knife edge yeah, gosh. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I mean, I sound like I'm talking it up, but um, you know, in the, no, in the no, 90s, no. it was uh, yeah, it was really dangerous stuff. Um, of course, as a young man, it was supremely exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, there was a lot of sadness in there as well, and, and I talk about some of that stuff in the book. I mean, Mac Lee, the guy who trained me, um, not long after I joined Cathay Pacific, um, he was killed in a in a you know. Um, controlled flight into terrain, basically flew a perfectly good aeroplane to the side of a hill through a series of circumstances and some bad luck. And um, I went to his funeral. You know, he was uh, my boss and my friend. And it's, uh, I'm sure other listeners would have been through this, but it, it's not pleasant, is it? But, but it, it, it comes with the territory, you know, if you're going to go and do that sort of flying. So you were saying about how many um, crashes there were, you know, one a month sort of thing. Yes. And... Uh, so were there were there a whole series of small airlines that were all uh, based in Moresby because you were you yes. were sort of a one one aircraft band. That's right. You? Yes. So I, I was with uh, Mac Lee. Eventually, we wound up with three pilots. So Mac, myself, um, an Australian guy called Sid McCurry, and um, uh, and there were more pilots that came after I left. But yeah, Moresby was one of the main centres, and Nadzab or Lay, which was in the northern coast. There was there was quite a few airlines up there. So you're exactly right. There was many, many, many GA airlines. So I talk about it in the book, and off the top of my head, I can't mention them all, but there must have been um, 8, 9, 10, 11 small GA operators, including the missionary operators, 
out of Moresby. So I talk about it in the book. It was like a bomb burst in the morning. So um, you'd go out there with, with Trans New Guinea Airways was our main competition uh, and Nation Air and Wantok Airways. So all the lads would, would trundle out there and they'd be in two Islanders and Cessna 206s and the occasional Twin Otter because um, Talair was going at the time, which was then the world's biggest third-level airline. So you'd all be trundling out to the holding point. Everybody would be going roughly in the same direction. So you'd all launch uh, almost like a you know big formation gaggle of uh, GA airplanes. And you'd get to about 15 miles just outside the control zone. And then, boom, there was like this bomb burst. And, you know, Tony Frude turns left and Dave Sargenton goes straight. And I, make, I turn right about 10 degrees. And then we all go off to the airstrips. Of course, in a 10-mile radius in some of these valleys, there would you know, there's eight airstrips. So... Wow. Um, Another great part of, of that whole experience was um, sometimes lying about where you were going on HF so you could go and steal somebody else's passengers because you often, you often had a feel for where the passengers were. So, you know, I would say, oh, I'm going to Farnay. And then, you know, Dave Sargenton, um, who's a good mate of mine, um, a Kiwi bloke uh, out of Wanaka, uh, he would, would lie and say he was going to Tarpini. And I get to Tarpini, and Dave, Dave's on the ground in Tarpini picking up the people that I was supposed to pick up. So, you know, <laughs> you do a low pass and then head off to Fane and pick up his passengers. So right. um, it was all – and there was so much work because the aeroplanes were, you know, only six to ten seats. And the, and the, the Guilalas, uh, that area was very busy in those days, as were a lot of these communities. So there was a lot of work uh, taking people and supplies in and bringing people and um, produce, you know, vegetables and – um, all that sort of stuff out. So, so yeah, the, there was a lot happening. It was great. Right. What sort of people were you carrying? Because in those mountain villages, was it just people that wanted to come out and go to town and then go back again, or? Yes. So there was there was a bit of that. Um, the most of the time it was yeah villagers who'd been spending time in Port Moresby for whatever reason, and you were flying them home. Uh, a lot of health workers, so doctors and nurses, a lot of education workers, uh, teachers, uh, and they all were um, paying with government checks. So a lot of it was subsidised yep. by the government. And a lot of work for trade store owners. So in every village, there'd be two or three, uh, almost like a dairy in New Zealand. You know, there'd be one of the village huts would uh, have an open side and you'd go in there and, you'd, you know, you'd be buying razor blades, rice, salt, crackers... Uh, sometimes frozen meat, although that was unusual. Tins of um, tuna and mackerel, um, you know, all the all the staples uh, for the the village diet. So those yep. those were the big men in the village. Those were the the, the guys that had money, um, and those are the ones that we had accounts with. Well, they had accounts with us. So I'd fly into an airstrip and drop off an order, and then I'd get a bit of paper with the new order on it, and then we would go and get the order for the. So I'd fly back to Moresby, and the afternoon job was to jump into the van and go to the trade stores and buy his order with his money okay. and then charge him a commission plus air freight and then fly it back into the, into the respective village. So most days you had two or three Cessna 206 loads, um, which is about 500 kilos, of yep. mostly trade store goods um, and two or three people. Uh, so, yeah, we, we did well. I mean, I, I did the books as well uh, for all of my flying. And the hourly rate back then... I don't know what Avgas was, but you'd be making five or six hundred dollars US per hour flying a two hundred six around, um, and you'd be doing three or four or five hours a day, so and, okay. that, and that's six days a week. So it, it was, I think it was quite lucrative for a while until all those crashes just kept getting too much, and I think the insurance premium started getting a little bit unmanageable, and ultimately I think that was the death of GA in New Guinea. So these days there's nowhere near the service that there used to be in those communities and uh, the people are hurting now right right did you ever have to carry any livestock in or out um oh there's a there's a story in the book about i was in a twin otter one day and so yes you had plenty of livestock uh, yeah. and i was at a place um uh called copiago out in the western highlands so i'd rolled up in a in a, in a twin otter and uh this uh, uh little trade store guy came out and uh and asked me if he could um Put his pig on board, so uh, uh, you know. Oh, Captain, me got one pella lick lick pig tassel. This pella am lick lick pig, meaning it's a small pig. And I, I said, yeah, okay. In a musky water, you kiss him this pella pig now. Put him inside long balos. Uh, so grab, you know, grab the pig. You know where he's, and and you can bring it with you. So then I, it was like Moses in the Red Sea. The the crowd off to the side of the Twin Otter parted, 
and <laughs> and two blokes came through with a with a uh, piece of wood that must have been I don't know three inches four inches across, um, like they'd cut down a sapling, and they had the thing on their shoulders and dangling between them was a pig that must have weighed oh at least 150 180 kilos. Wow! Uh, still alive, uh, trussed to the pole, uh, you know, screaming away. Uh, yeah. And I, so I said to these guys, I said, yes, well, so much for the you know, lick-lick pig. That's a, that's a big pella pig, Tassol. That's a big pig. So I said, I said to them, the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to cut off the wood, guys, because that's not going to fit. They were trying to put it into the rear cargo hold of a twin otter. So imagine trying to put a, um, a 10-foot pole and a 180-kilo pig into the back of a twin otter. It's like, <laughs> as I say in the book, it's like put, trying to put an elephant into a phone booth. So I said, that's not going to happen. So they, they got an axe and chopped off uh, either end of the pole, just near where the pig was tied up. The pig wasn't very impressed. And it still didn't fit. Um, but, of course, I was taking them and this trade store owner and, and his party of people to, a, um, I think, to a wedding uh, in the next village. So the pig was, was, um, was the main course. And it was probably a, a, you know, a, a dowry or some sort of tribute. Um, yep. uh, he was a big man in the village. That would have been his gift. So I couldn't leave the pig behind. So in the end, we just I uh, just told the cargo boys to just put it in the aisle between the passengers and strap it to the seats, and off we went. But uh, you don't t- don't tell anyone, Dave. And the whole <laughs> it was only about a twenty minute sector, but the whole way over the the, the shrill whine of the um the the, the twin PT sixes and the twin otter, I could hear the, the the shrill whine of the very unhappy pig. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Got the job done. But yeah, plenty of um you know chickens and um. A lot of small stuff, um, nothing yep. generally too big. I know friends of mine carried crocodiles. Uh, oh, wow. You know, had to make sure that, you know, just baby ones, to, I guess, to take to farms for meat and, uh, and the skin. But, um, yeah, nothing. The biggest thing I ever saw was that, that lick-lick pig out of uh, Copiago. <laughs> but what, did you, what did you do uh, for recreation there in your time off? Well, I don't talk about this too much in the book, but uh, there was a lot of beer drinking. I think... Um, uh, most of the time, you're so worn out. I remember, I mean, I was only 20-something, and I was, I'd was i finish at 2 in the afternoon. The first thing you wanted to do was have an afternoon nap because yeah. you'd, you'd been concentrating for a few hours, and, um, you know, sometimes your hands were still shaking from some of the, the scary stuff that you'd experienced, especially when the weather was bad. So, yeah, a lot of, um, of socialising with uh, the other pilots because generally you lived in a compound um, uh, with a lot of other guys, um, so in the weekends, I suppose we let off steam. So it actually reminded me of those days in Wigram where, and I, I do talk about in the book, where there was far too much beer being consumed, I think, to take our mind off how stressful, you know, Monday to Friday was or Monday to Saturday right. was. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you, you mentioned the Cessna 206 and the um, Twin Otter. Yes. Uh, did, you, did you fly anything else, any other types? Yes, yeah, so I started with Air Manobata and got checked out on the... Cessna 206, and as I said, I did, I think, almost a 1,000 hours on that. And then after maybe 800 hours of that, uh, Mac bought a Cessna 402, uh, a B model that I think was ex-Talia. So we started a new run flying uh, 8,000 chickens uh, twice a week up into the highlands, uh, you know, day-old chicks. So we'd we'd fill up the 402 with chicks and then um, bring back vegetables from the highlands. So that, that was good. And then within about six or eight months of buying the 402, he'd hired another pilot and we, he bought an ex-Royal Flying Doctors uh, Piper Navajo that was in really great condition. The 402 was pretty, pretty rough, but the, the Navajo was um, uh, practically brand new. So, then okay. we were, so I was flying those three, the 206, the 402 and the Navajo. And I, yeah, I, I worked for Mac for about 18 months and then joined a, a turboprop uh, company. Okay. You, you never got to fly the... Um the Pilatus Porter then? No, no, there were no porters in New Guinea when I was there. Um, uh, I think I've just seen that they're stopping production of that. I mean, I, I, yes. would love, I would love to fly a porter. I know in New Guinea, I think they had the, uh, was there one that wasn't turbine, the first model perhaps? So we might yeah, be talking about, I believe there was. Yeah, I think we might be talking about the 60s, right? 60s, 70s. I know that the, yep. the original porter was flown, I think, by Talair. I've seen photos of it and when I was researching the book. No, I didn't get into the porter. Um, I would love to, but I was very lucky. I got uh, a lot of single pilot twin otter time, so um, it doesn't get much, doesn't get much better than that. The twin otter was just the perfect machine um, for you know those sort of bush operations. So you could carry a ton and a half into all the same places that you took the two hundred six, but with heaps more performance, 
and the benefit of reverse thrust uh, and um, and even a little bit of reverse in the air if you really needed it, which was against uh, manufacturer's instructions. But that was a get out, that was a get out of jail free card, which I I was shown um, quite early on, and when when I was checked out on the Otter. Okay, okay. So so you didn't you didn't get into the Porter, but everything else really does sound like Air America. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's right. I was I was about to say that I didn't get shot at, but actually uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about getting shot at. Um, so when I was there, the civil war in Bougainville was raging. So the um, the BRA, the uh, Bougainville Revolutionary Army, that wanted to break away from New Guinea because they had the uh, massive uh, reserves of copper at the Panguna mine, which was about 25% of GDP at the time. So there was a civil war raging, and uh, occasionally the PNG Defence Force would break down. Well, a lot actually, and we would do the charters. So we'd be flying troops and ammunition into a place called Buka. And a mate of mine, uh, it's another story in the book, got shot, got actually got shot down, got strafed by an M16 taking off from an airstrip um, wow. and, you know, bullets through the canopy, uh, sorry, through the side of the uh, aeroplane, took out a wheel, took out a quarter of the rudder, um, bullets through the nose cone and bullets right through the chest of a passenger uh, killed instantly. So, uh, wow. so we, yeah, so we used to fly into um, Booker, there was a NOTAM, uh, and I don't know how, you know how many people have seen a no-town like this. I should have I should have kept it saying um, uh, you know uh, notice to all airmen um, uh, minimize time and book a circuit area due small arms fire. So wow. so I was what was I twenty three twenty four. I was a captain of a Dornier two two eight going in there, and and I thought it was great. I thought it was a real adventure. I thought oh this is good. This is just like you know what I was supposed to be doing when I joined the air force. You wouldn't catch me doing it now, but uh, <laughs> back then uh, that was supremely exciting uh, until our mate got shot down and then, you know, we, we reconsidered. But um, just another just another day in New Guinea, really. Yeah, yeah. So how did you progress from that huge adventure and amazing flying uh, and then go to um, airline flying? Um, well, that was sort of a, a continuation of the adventure in a way and certainly of, of the expat lifestyle. So in, in the 90s, I was trying very hard to get into either ANSET Australia, uh, Qantas, Air New Zealand or Cathay Pacific. So whoever um, was silly enough to hire me, uh, I was going to go there first. I started the Qantas and Cathay interview procedures uh, at the same process at the same time. So that would have been in 94. Um, and uh, Cathay offered me a job in, must have been May 1995, so they were the, the first airline to offer me a job. But I'd been to Hong Kong for the interview and the sim ride. So I took it with both hands. I thought it was fantastic. And, of course, back then, Hong Kong had Kai Tak, uh, probably one of the most famous airline um, you know, approaches uh, yep. in the world. So I was lucky right. enough to get to Hong Kong uh, when that was still happening. So I joined as a second officer on the 747-400. And, oh, wow. and in less than two years, I was a, um, a first officer on the 747 flying the, the, the IGS approach into runway 13 in Hong Kong myself. Uh, so, yeah, it was, and it reminded me of bush flying, you know, coming into Hong Kong in a typhoon, doing that, doing that last-minute dog-leg turn in a 280-tonne 747, um, just... It reminded me very much of you know trying to land a, a twin otter at 3 p.m. on one of those mountain airstrips with uh, tailwinds and turbulence and you know you had your work cut out for you. So I suppose the New Guinea stuff, uh, strangely enough, prepared me for um, for Hong Kong. Yeah, right. right. Of, co of course, eventually that that unfortunately that airport closed and now it's a lot more pedestrian. We're we're out at um, uh, Chiklapcock Airport out on Lantau Island, which is. Um, it has some topographical and weather challenges, but of course it's nothing on the, the old IGS approach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you've been with uh, Cathay ever since and, and living in Hong Kong ever since? Yeah, yeah. So I started in 95, so this is year year 22. So um, yeah, just under two years as an SO, and then I must have spent about uh, seven, eight years as a first officer. And then I did a command on the Airbus A330, and then uh, at the time in Cathay, um, we flew the A340 as well. So I flew the, the twin A330 and the, and the quad-engined A340. And then about three years ago or two and a half years ago, I had the seniority to bid for a command slot on the 777. So I've, I've been flying the oh, right. 777 for um, two and a half years. Yeah, so um, 
So, I'd, yeah, 10 years on the 400, nine years on the Airbus, and now two and a half years-ish on the 777. So I've been lucky to have a nice, a nice mix. Yeah. So what sort of uh, routes are you flying at the moment? Do, uh, are you going long haul? And- yeah, so I've, uh, my seniority is such that I can, I can select or, or request what I want to do. So I, I do long haul, and I, I double up on my trips. So I do um, back-to-back long haul trips, and then I get double the amount of time you'd normally get off. And then I try and spend a lot of time in New Zealand. It took me a long time to realise where my heart, where my heart is, and uh, you know New Zealand's home. And I've been away since 1992, so um, oh, that's a quarter of a quarter of a century, isn't it? Um, yes. So uh, I really miss it. So I try and get down there as much as I can, and I'm back into GA, and uh, I'm starting to get active with the New Zealand Warbirds out of Ardmore. So I've got a share in a, a chipmunk there. Oh. And for quite a few years, I've had a share in, um, in an L-29 a Delphin, ex-Bulgarian um, Air Force uh, ground attack jet trainer. So yep. um, we had, um, uh, through a company called Double X Aviation, we had New Zealand's first part 115 joy flight business running out of Queenstown uh, for a while there uh, with a, a good friend of mine called Pete Meadows. So that's... Right. Um, that's uh, we're taking a break from that at the moment, but that's another thing I've been doing. So, yeah, still active and, you know, real flying, if you like, uh, quote, unquote. Um, so, yeah, the airline stuff is great, but my passion is still flying the, you know, put me in a bug smasher. If you want to see me with a big smile on my face, put me in something small and, and let me loose. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. There's, there's, there's nothing like it, right? On a nice day, flying around New Zealand, it's just a real treat. And, um uh, I, I, you know, that's I really appreciate that when I when I get a chance to do that. Excellent, excellent. Now, now the book. Um, one thing I want to say about the book is the striking cover art. It just, it's fantastic. I, I just love it. It, it yep. reminds me of the sort of nineteen fifties or nineteen sixties adventure books. And right. It's got a right. It's got a tribal warrior on it, and, yes. and it's got, got your Cessna. Uh, two SC two oh six on there. That's right. It? So uh, you're right, I actually I hadn't even thought of that. Um it's almost like a Zane Grey uh mm. sort of a vibe, isn't it? Um yeah. I, I Dave, I hadn't even thought of that. That that wasn't my intention. But you're right, that you're probably right. So th- there's a story to everything in the book because I um I'm probably O C D and I um work very hard to you know uh on the publishing process to make sure that it looked like a real a real thing and not something that some guy just written on his part time in his spare time, even though that's yep. probably the case. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I I designed the the concept. So I actually based it on uh, movie posters. So it's actually based you know, just the the look of it is based on um, you know the Lion King meets you know some of those Broadway movie posters. I wanted it to yep. pop out in the shelf. Um, yep, yep. The, the colours are the colours of the Papua New Guinea flag. Um, right. And the warrior is actually the symbol of Talair, which was a massive third-level airline operating Bandarantes and Pilatus Porters and Dash 8s and uh, Twin Otters and all sorts of things, 206s, 185s, um, back in the day, certainly all through the uh, 60s, 70s and 80s. So I contacted the son of the founder and he was happy for me to use that image. So that's, yeah, that's a, it's actually a coastal warrior, I think, um, not a Highlands warrior. And the aeroplane is uh, is a, a, a tribute actually to uh, one of the guys who was killed. I didn't know him, but I, I, I have friends who knew him. So there's a chap called Paul Brown who's an Australian guy. So the Cessna 206 image on the cover is taken from a photo taken of, full, of Paul Brown flying that aeroplane. So, that, so Paul Brown is inside that aeroplane. He was actually um, sort of the, the poster child really for how bad luck – will catch up with you in New Guinea. So he crashed once, and uh, I think doing a reversal turn, he found himself in the wrong valley, and he cr- crashed in the treetops, and I think one or two passengers were killed. He went up with some severe uh, neck injuries and things, recuperated in Australia, went back to New Guinea, and he was flying with the guy at North Coast Aviation called Dieter Wirth, who was um, uh, the chief pilot, I think, or one of the training pilots, and Dieter was training Paul Brown in an islander and they went out um, on a training flight and were never seen again. So they were both killed in Paul Brown's second crash. So wow. that's where that image comes from. Um, but, yeah, the, 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 the book art was done by um, uh, uh, a, a young lady called Rachel Vella, who's a, a commercial artist who actually w- works on uh, movie posters. And um, this was her first project doing a book cover. 
So I worked with her and you know brought her onto the design team to, to do the cover. So thanks for mentioning it. But um, uh, yeah, I get a lot of good comments about the cover. I mean, the cover's important, but hopefully the words inside are pretty good too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they must be pretty good because you've just won a silver medal at the Independent uh, Publisher Publishers Book Awards, haven't you? I have, yeah. That was... Um, very, uh, I mean, it was wonderful. It was very humbling. But um, yes, yeah, so uh, that's an annual book awards in the US and open to indie and small publishing houses. So I, I forget the limit, but I think you can't have any more than six titles published a year. So a lot okay. of university presses uh, qualify and, and self publishers uh, like myself. So I entered that just uh, basically wanting to gauge, you know, you know, is the book any good? Because I'm, I'm so close to it now. After spending ten years writing it, you sort of um, you 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 don't know if it's good or not. You just you, you right. hope it is. But you know, I, I explained to people, you know, putting a book out into the market is a bit like having a baby. Um, you don't know if your baby is a good-looking baby or an ugly baby uh, until, <laughs> until, you, until you show you know eight hundred thousand people a photo of it, uh, and they tell yeah. you. They tell you. So 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 yeah, uh, that was. So I suppose the Independent Publisher Book Awards were telling me that my baby is not too ugly. Um, yeah, that was wonderful. So they had 4,000 entries in their many, many categories from about 13 different countries, I think, this year. And yeah, wow. I got a silver medal in the New Zealand-Australia non-fiction category. And I was very fortunate to wrangle a work trip. to uh, So Cathay basically let me fly a 777 from Hong Kong to New York. And I went to the Book Awards, which was at a nightclub uh, sort of entertainment venue in Times Square at the end of May. So what a great night that was. Uh, yeah, uh, a real treat, and of course, you know that that doesn't hurt book sales, does it? So I've been doing a new round of publicity, trying to uh, drum up interest in the book, which so far seems to be going all right. Um, and you know that's why you and I are having this chat. So it, it's been yeah. really good. It's been really really good. Excellent. Mm. Well, congratulations. Um, where can people buy the book? So uh, the second, um, the first. Uh, paperback edition uh, sold out, which is uh, wonderful. Um, so now the paperback is only available online. So um, if someone wants to Google the paperback, you will find it at the Book Depository, um, which I presume is the bookdepository.com, which is based in the UK. And the book is available, I think, for 33 Kiwi with free international postage. Uh, you okay. can also get it as a paperback on Amazon.com uh, in the US uh, for similar prices, I think. And the ebook is available on Amazon and Kindle format, and it's also available on iTunes and iBooks in that format, and it's available on Kobo as well. Uh, but most of my sales are um, through the Kindle version, which I think is the most most popular. So if you're an ebook person, um, Amazon's the best place to go. And if you're a paperback, you know, hold it in your hands and have that tactile sense, then uh, the Book Depository or Fishpond.com.au or um, uh, Amazon.com. Uh, Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure to uh, hear some of your stories. Yes, well, th thanks, Dave. It's uh, a pleasure from my side as well, and uh, thanks very much for your time. No worries. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Oh,